many of you have known the name and heard me speak of it, but read on your own C.S. Lewis, a British author, academic, theologian. Um, he wrote an essay called uh, God in the Dock. And it's an essay regarding um, our tendencies to hold God in contempt when he uh, doesn't act or behave in a way that we think God ought to be. And, and here's what he writes about this. And of course, God in the dock, the dock being an, a word for the seat of the accused. So he writes this at the end of his essay. He says, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He, that is the modern man, is the judge. God is in the dock. He, the modern man, is quite the kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now in chapter 27, this is a very dark chapter. We have had Judas betray Jesus, Judas a friend betray Jesus to the, the high priests. And now we have Jesus on trial. Jesus is in the dock before Pilate. And you remember where the story is. Um, the story in Matthew 26, Jesus had been uh, convicted, condemned by the Jewish high court. He was then being sent to Pilate because the Jewish high court could not execute a sentence of death. And so on the way to Pilate, then Matthew kind of inserts that story of Judas betraying. And we pick it back up. So 1711 is really picking up in 17, 1 and 2. But, but what, he's, what he's showing us here is, is the darkness of the heart of man to put God on trial. And this trial will lead to his crucifixion and his death and his burial. The way I want to preach this, because it's a narrative and it has a certain flow to it, I just want to explain the nature of this trial to you. I just want to explain it to you. I'm not going to put a lot of application, just explain the trial, and then I will draw some uh, applications from it. Because I think what Matthew's doing is he's trying to give us a theology of the cross. The very next next week we'll be looking at, at Matthew um, 27 verses 27 on and it's the crucifixion scene. And I think he's setting us up to understand that but he wants to understand Jesus first in this trial. Um, so look with me if you will back at 11 it says he's standing before the governor. Let me give you a little snapshot of Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Rome from 26 AD to 36 AD. Um, extra biblical sources, that is other writers outside of the Bible, speak about Pilate, <clears throat> excuse me, Pilate being a, a inept but harsh, insensitive, um, being uh, a hater of the Jews, insensitive the, to their sensibilities. Uh, in fact, one Greek author says that he was unbending, unyielding, harsh and malignant. Now you see this in some of the actions that are carried forth. There is a scene where Pilate was actually having his soldiers, and this is detailed, much of it, by Josephus, a, a Jewish historian. 
uh, that he was having his soldiers march into Jerusalem with an emblem of Caesar on their banner, which would have been odious to the Jews, whereas other prefects, other Roman prefects, would not have done that just to not upset the Jewish population. But he marched them in there with this blasphemous sign of Caesar on all the banners, caused a bit of an uproar. But not just that, he was harsh. Now, that's Pilate. So Jesus is now standing before Pilate. Now, I want to paint the scene for you because it's probably one of the greatest ironies you'll ever see in this world, that that Pilate is seated on what's called the Bema seat, the judgment seat. And he is in a high and lifted up place. It's been excavated in Jerusalem. And he would sit there, and Jesus is standing before him in the dock, under judgment. The one who will judge the world is submitting himself to the judgment of a man. In fact, J.C. Rowell, the English preacher in the 19th century, said, that must, that sight must have been astonishing to the angels of God. He who will one day judge the world allowed himself to be judged and condemned, though he had done no wrong. So that's kind of the scene here. You have Pilate judging Jesus. So he begins the questioning. And the questioning is, are you king of the Jews? Now, this was a political question from Pilate. Are you the king? Now, if you remember from a couple weeks back, he was convicted under the charge of blasphemy by the Jewish courts. Now, blasphemy is a religious charge, and the Romans would not execute a person based upon a religious charge. So they trumped up the charge that he was claiming to be king. To to claim to be king in the Roman Empire was a direct threat to the government, and it was dealt with severely and swiftly. And Jesus, to the question, are you the king of the Jews, simply said, it is as you say. Or you have said so. In other words, you've said it with your own lips. Do you notice it's exactly the same way he answers the Sanhedrin the night before? In other words, what he's saying is, yes, I affirm that I am, but not in the way that you think. Just like if you remember before the chief priests, they said, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he said, it is as you say. But he says, but you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand, coming back in the clouds of glory. You have no idea you're speaking about and so when Pilate says are you the king of the Jews it is as you say but later on in John he says but my kingdom is not of this world now this whole time Jesus doesn't say anything else that's all he says is you have said so that's it now you've got the chief priests and the elders they're of course hurling accusations at Jesus and probably from Luke 23 they were saying like he told us not to pay taxes to Caesar's and he, he's stirring up rebellion in the colonies and, and throwing all these accusations at them. But it says that Jesus was silent. He didn't say a word, not to one single charge. And so just within the verses 11 to 14, the end result is you have Pilate, who's a governor, be greatly amazed, not because his fear over some alleged insurrectionist, but he's in just amazed that he says nothing. What man accused would say nothing? Well, as you read the story and as you draw in other parts from other Gospels, you begin to see that Pilate really doesn't want to be here. Pilate doesn't want to be the judge of this. If you were to read John, which is a much fuller um, picture of this scene, uh, John actually records that 
that Pilate tried to send him back to the Jewish courts. said, you judge him in your own courts. We're not going to judge him here. And then when that didn't work, he sent him to Herod because he heard that Jesus was from Galilee. Herod is the king of Galilee. And so he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at the time. Herod sent him back as well. Now we're going to see why Pilate is the man that will be judging Jesus. But he didn't want to. But you also begin to feel sorry for Pilate because Pilate begins to see the man might be innocent. He says in verse 18 that he knew that he was delivered up because of their envy. And then you see in verse 19 about his wife having this dream saying, have nothing to do with that man, that righteous man, that innocent man. So he's Pilate's a politician and he's on the horns of a dilemma right now. He has this increasingly developing awareness that Jesus is innocent. And he's got this Jewish leadership that continues to complain to Rome about his leadership. What's he going to do? Well, I think Pilate probably dreamed up. He thought he had the best political idea going. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring an alternative. You know, He's going to work with the Jewish custom of releasing a prisoner on the Feast of Passover. And I'm going to put one so odious that they'll have to release Jesus. Anybody would go with Jesus. I mean, it's a great idea if you think about it. He's, you know, what happens is it soothes his conscience. He doesn't have to condemn an innocent man. It placates the people. They get the prisoner they want released. It throws a bone to Jesus and helps him out in a bit of a strait that he's in. And it gets a dig into the leadership that he didn't like anyways. I mean, it's a stacked deck. He's got Barabbas. Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. From the other Gospels, we, we, we read that Barabbas was a thief, a murderer, an insurrectionist. He was not loved by the Romans, for sure. He wasn't loved by the Jews either. He was a thief. He was notorious. He wasn't some famous zealot that they rallied around. I mean, why would they choose him? Jesus, he's a preacher. He's a teacher of righteousness. He's a healer. He's a kind man. He cares for children. They even saw that in Jerusalem. It had to be a slam dunk in his mind. But, you know, he miscalculated. He did not realize the lobbying power that the Jewish leadership had. And they went around and they persuaded the people to ask for Barabbas. And so when Pilate said, whom do you want me to release for you? They shouted, Barabbas. Barabbas? He said, what do you want me? This is the quintessential question of life. What do you want me to do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him. And he asked, what evil has he done to warrant such an execution? Crucify him. They just shouted louder. Now, I want to just digress here for a minute. Many people wonder, how could these people on Monday be shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, and now they're shouting, crucify him on Friday? A lot of people say, well, it just shows the fickleness of man. Well, we are fickle. But I don't think that's the point here. It's probably a different crowd. The people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David were probably pilgrims coming in with Jerusalem who had heard about his ministry. These people were probably smaller and they were native to Jerusalem. It was early on Friday morning. They were easily swayed. But either way, his plot failed. And so when they began screaming and the crowds began to get in an uproar, he realizes he's gaining nothing and he washes his hands of the whole thing. And then just for political appeasement, and, and he says this, he says, um, what evil has he done? And of course, they say to him, 
Um, he washes his hands, says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And they said, his blood be on us and our children. I don't think they're invoking a curse on themselves. I think they're just saying, we will take responsibility for this. And so in a political appeasement, he goes ahead and has Jesus scourged, has him scourged. Now, let me explain that. Scourging is done by a professional soldier generally, It's a cord of leather straps with knots at the end and pieces of bone and metal in them so that when they're brought down on the back of the victim, it's going to lacerate the skin to tear it apart, to weaken the person either in punishment or in preparation for execution. Eusebius was a Greek or... um, yeah, one of the, the, the earliest church historian, for early 4th century, he wrote this about witnessing one of these. He said that they were torn by the scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs, were exposed to sight. So you can see, and you know the prophecy in Isaiah fifty-two fifteen, where it says, he was marred beyond recognition. Now, the Jews would scourge 40 less 1, or 39. The Romans had no such limit. Now, we don't know how many times they whipped Jesus with this scourging, but we know that it weakened him so much that he couldn't carry his own cross and he was not recognizable. So that's really the, the tragedy and the darkness of this trial that it began with Pilate and it ended with Pilate collapsing under the weight of the pressure that he was before. So what do we do with this? Like, Like we're a modern audience. You know, we weren't there. This will never be played out again. So what do we do with this? Well, We've got to do something with it because Matthew spent more ink on this passage than he does on the whole narrative of the actual crucifixion. So there's something in this for us. And as I said, I think there's a theology of the cross here. I think this is really important. Matthew is is getting us to see the radical innocence of Jesus. I think we've seen that through Matthew. His kindness, his mercy. The only time he seems to get angry, it's a righteous anger towards religious hypocrisy. But he, he doesn't speak with deceit. He doesn't speak with mixed motives. He's an honest individual. I think we see that all through Matthew. But I think, I think Matthew's made it even ultimately more clear just in this 26 and 27. Think about what Judas said when he came back into the temple and he was returning the money to the Sanhedrin to say, he said this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He uses the word for innocent. Jesus is innocent. You see Pilate's wife say this, have nothing to do with that righteous or innocent man. You even see it in Pilate's life. He's washing his hands, which is implying that he feels Jesus is what? Innocent. Not only that, but when Pilate asks the crowds, what evil has he done? What did they say? Nothing. When the Sanhedrin was getting more witnesses to try to convict Jesus of something wrong, Nobody said anything. They couldn't find anything against him. Now, why is it so important for Matthew to get us to see the radical innocence of Jesus? And the point is, 
that he didn't die for any sin of himself. You know, the priests year after year would sacrifice for the sins of the people, but also for their own sins. He has no sin. He has died to bear our sin. He has died to carry our sin. He has none. He's a fully innocent man. He died with the wicked for us. This is the precious point of the gospel. That one so innocent and pure would bear the stain and the sin and the guilt and the shame of one so bad, so wicked. Now, this is a hard thing for us to grasp, I think, in our modern, in our modern lives. We tend to proclaim very quickly the nature of our innocence. Quickly. In marriages, in the conflict we have in marriage, in the conflict we have with our parenting, in the conflict we have in our church community, we quickly proclaim our innocence. I, I saw this on steroids when I would be ministering in the prison. Every person I would meet was innocent. It was incredible. I, I felt as if the prison was the safest place to be because everybody was so innocent there. And, and until you grasp the reality of our guilt, we will never understand this idea that an innocent man had to be put to death to suffer the wrath of God for us. Now, I quoted a few weeks ago, G.K. Chesterton said that the universal experience of mankind is an uneasy conscience because we're all guilty. And folks, I cannot encourage you. The, the one indication for me, more and more as I remain in ministry, the one indication of the grace of God at work in someone is this ability that we have, by God's grace, to admit culpability in sin and guilt. That, that we can admit that we're not having to so point out the errors and sins of others, but that we recognize the sin in ourselves. And you realize that until you can do that, you'll never understand what he has done. You'll definitely never sense your desperate need for it. So it's the first thing we see, that the innocence of Jesus. But secondly, we see Jesus being silent in his willingness. Now, you saw the scene. I tried to trace through what happened in this courtroom scene. You can tell the agitation. Pilate's worrying about political fallout. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin is getting upset more and more that Jesus might somehow be acquitted, and the crowd's getting more and more of an uproar. And what do you see of Jesus? He's silent. He's secure. He stands there. He doesn't move. Such that Pilate is greatly amazed. He's greatly amazed. He, Pilate knows he will be facing a cross, and he's silent. You know, one commentator said of the 19th century, he said, who is silent when their life is at stake? Who is silent? Who would not raise some objection? But he says nothing. Jesus says that. Why? And if you think that Jesus is silent as some kind of implicit condemnation on the proceedings, I think it's far too shallow. His silence is this. He knows he has to die. He wants to go the way of the cross. He's committed. There is nothing that will compromise or jeopardize God's plan to bring him to the end of the cross. 
Listen, Jesus, we've already seen his words. If Jesus wants to speak, he can calm winds. He can raise the dead. He can cleanse the leper. He can free the demonized. We know that if Jesus wants to get in a theological debate with anybody, he wins hands down. The end of chapter 23, they said no one dared ask him another question. So if he wants to speak, he does just fine. But he's muzzling himself, as it were, so that he will walk the road that was set before him. He knows that his silence is pointing out to any reader of the Old Testament, he's the Messiah promised by God, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we read these words that we all like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So all the sins have been laid on him. Him, he was oppressed, he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. I mean, can you marvel with me for just a moment that in his silence is our salvation? Can you just think with me that in his silence rests for us assurance, a commitment that he would do all that was needed to save us? But then thirdly, not only did he die innocent, did he die silent, he died according to the sovereign plan of God, the divine design of God. I want you to, folks, this was no accident, it was no error, it was no mistake. Now, for some people to hear me say, Jesus died because God designed him to die, that is abhorrent to many people. But I think the text demands it. I I, I think that we see that God is actually using the Roman governor Pilate to bring about the death of his son on a cross so that he could bear the curse that was put upon mankind in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus bore the curse. I'll talk about that more next week. But I want you to see that Pilate is actually instrumental in our salvation. Have you ever wondered why in the Apostles' Creed we always say suffered under Pontius Pilate? All the things that could have been said about Jesus in the Apostles' Creed, why, why did Pilate get airtime? Why is he in there? He, wh- why is he there? He's there because he's an instrument of God bringing about his perfect design. Because you remember in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, he says this, Truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God uses Pilate. Why? Because God's going to set the death of his son in history. He's going to drive it in space and time. Nobody can say Jesus just died. It was a spiritual death, displaying God's love for the world. No, there was a human being named Pontius Pilate who played a role in bringing about the execution of the Son of God to save all mankind. So as sure as I'm standing here in space and time, he stood there in space and time that there is no metaphorical or spiritual understanding of this cross. It was physical, it was real, it was documented. Space and time, that's important in our world where truth is sliding all over the map. The fourth thing I think that we see here, not that he just died innocent, he died willing and silent, he died according to God's design, but he also died being fully rejected. 
He was rejected. Now look back with me on this 25th verse, because this has been used in the centuries by many people to push the burden of responsibility upon the Jewish people. In fact, it was used, the Nazis used this. This is proof positive that Jesus was killed by the Jews. Now, let me just remind you, This is not an anti-Semitic text. Matthew is a Jew. He's writing to Jews. This isn't anti-Semitism here. How do we understand this text? It's hard. It, It probably relates to that group there that day. His blood be upon us. They're taking responsibility upon themselves and their children. And I would remind you that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., And many of these people who said this had children at that time in Jerusalem. But we don't know fully what it means, other than they're accepting responsibility. But we see here that it's not to be just given to the Jewish people as a whole alone. We all rejected Jesus. Everybody rejected him. And what's ironic is, as you've been here, if you've been here in the study of Matthew, what's Matthew's goal in his gospel? It's been to declare Jesus to be the king. I mean, remember in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, we find Jesus is born of David. David is the king. His son is going to be the king. We see the Magi came and worshipped him in chapter 2 as the king. We see the current king of Jerusalem, Herod, was threatened by the king, Jesus. Jesus is given a message of declaring a kingship. Then we see 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. What is he doing? He's giving the words of a king. He's giving the new law. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus is announcing a new law as kings announce. Right? And then 8 and 9, he does the works of a king. He does healings. He raises the dead. He cleanses the leper. And then in 10 and 11 and 12, he begins to gather people as a king. Kings have subjects. He had subjects. And then he sends his subjects out with the message of the king. And we see it increasingly be rejected all the way until the very end when he's rejected by the leadership. So Jesus is a king, even in Matthew 28. What happens at the ascension? It says he's given all power and authority as a king, and yet they reject the king. But let me tell you, so does Pilate reject the king. Pilate just does it in a weaker way. He's a man with very weak moral conscience. He's a man that's subject to the fear of crowds. He's a man that's expedient. You know, here, his conscience convicted him. His wife convicted him. Herod convicted him. He was an innocent man, but he collapsed under the weight. He collapsed under it all. He rejected him by his benign treatment of Jesus. We see the religious leaders, of course they rejected him in a more virulent tone, right? They hated Jesus, but have you ever asked, why did they hate him? What had he done? He was no felon, he was no murderer. He he was a kind man, he was a teacher of righteousness, but they hated him. Or look at the crowds. The crowds are just following the herd mentality. I mean, they didn't even know when, when Pilate asked, what evil has he done? They didn't have an answer, and yet they're saying, crucify him? I mean, shouldn't they have done a mild amount of investigation before issuing such a charge? And then the disciples. Where are the disciples? They're not even around. The ones that followed him for three years, they don't even make an appearance in the text. They surely deserted him. That's a form of rejection, no doubt. So, I mean, you look at all these rejections. There's a, there's a, 
There's just all kinds of ways that we reject Christ. So for us today, rejection of Christ doesn't have to look like the religious. By the way, it is the religious that reject him with the most vitriol. Why? Because when we're religious, we feel righteous. And when we feel righteous and we're confronted with pure righteousness, we don't like that. We don't like that at all. To be told that my religion is not enough. I find often the most amount of pushback to the pure gospel of absolute humility needing Christ is often the pushback comes from the religious. Why? Because they've gotten so cleaned up. They need him less. And that's a warning for all of us. I mean, I, I think about the parotene where Jesus is talking about the Pharisee that got up to the temple and he thanks God that he's not like these other people. He's all the way in the back beating his breast saying, have, mer- have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. He has no problem confessing. And of course, Jesus says he went home justified. But here's the parable. In Luke 18, he says he told this parable to some who did in themselves that they were righteous. So we can reject Jesus with religion. Many of us need to repent of our religion if we have found ourselves trusting in it as a means of finding right relationship with God. Uh, others, others deny or reject Jesus like the governor did. We're kind of weak. You know, we're kind of going with the pressure of the crowd. Well, we kind of are drawn to him, but not that much. We're more expedient. We're more political. Others reject him like the crowds. We don't really investigate him. I talk to people and say, yeah, I'm investigating all religions. I said, how many hours have you spent this last week investigating any religion? Well, I, 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 I got things to do. I'm like, come on. I mean, you're, you're not doing it. I mean, let's not be apathetic about it. Or the disciples, they desert him. So, so, so I would ask you to consider your life. Now, you may say to me, okay, it's a heavy passage. Is there hope in this passage? Is there hope for those of us who have at one point or another rejected him? Yes, there is hope. There's hope both for those who are currently rejecting him and there's hope for those that maybe have come to faith. Look at, look at the scene with, Barnab- uh, with uh, sorry, Barabbas. I, I want you to know the word Barabbas means son of the father. Bar-Abbas, Bar-Abba. Son of the Father. There's, a, there's a, a, a providential irony in this. The early manuscripts give Barabbas' first name, Jesus. Jesus Barabbas, he's called. Like Judas Iscariot, Jesus Barabbas. But the irony is that he's the one that's the son of the Father with Jesus Bar-Joseph, or Jesus, son of Joseph, who is the true son of the Father. And what we see here is between these two men is that Barabbas is the felon. He's the murderer. He's the convicted one. And he walks free because of Jesus, the true son of the father, bearing his cross. It is thought by many commentators that that, um, Barabbas was to be the third one executed that day. That the other two criminals were cohorts with Barabbas. They all were zealots. They all were insurrectionists. They all were going to be killed. And Jesus took the cross that was for Barabbas. And so you see this picture of God's unfathomable grace of the gospel that Barabbas, who deserved to die, this true son of God, at one point, bearing God's image, was saved by the true son of God who came to take his cross for him. This is a beautiful picture of the substitutionary atonement. This is the hope for people who have rejected him. 
This is our hope that we all are the Barabbas. We all need Christ to take our cross. And this really leads us into what does it mean to become a Christian here? If you're not a Christian, you're considering this. This is what it means to become a Christian is that I recognize the nature of my sin. I recognize that I have sinned against God. I'm like the prodigal son who comes to my senses. I'm no longer defending myself. I'm no longer excusing myself. I'm no longer exonerating myself by all these other people who have done bad to me. I've never done bad. That I recognize the nature of my sin and I repent before God. I confess my sin to him, and I repent, and I ask for God to change. I want to follow Jesus now. That's what it means to become a Christian. To be a Christian is to remember this. It's to never forget it. You know, why does Paul, who stands on the other side of the resurrection, who had an encounter with the living Christ, why would he say, I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him, what? Crucified. Not resurrected, crucified. We never forget the cross. Why did Jesus ascend with the wounds still in his hands and his side and his feet? He will forever bear the marks of the cross throughout all eternity. He told Thomas, stick a finger in there. He will bear the marks forever. Why? Because the cross is what saves us. The resurrection surely vindicates the effect of the cross and establishes us justified, but we'll never get away from the cross. Being the Christian means we will never stray from the gospel of this cross. We remember it and then we rejoice over it. We rejoice that he would be for us our cross bearer, bearing the shame, bearing the guilt, bearing the condemnation of God. And we rejoice so that even when life seems so precarious to us right in front of our eyes, we don't need to fear. Because one has died and has come to life again. We have no fear knowing that he has borne it all for us. Let's take a minute now and we look at this trial scene. We see that he died innocently. He died silently, willingly. He died by design and he died rejected by us. For those of you who are not a Christian here, would you consider this message of hope that he would take your cross. For those who are Christian here, would you take a minute with me silently? Let's rejoice over all that he is and all that he has done for us. And then an elder is going to close us in just a minute.